This is my story. You've tuned in to When Your Mind Becomes the Scene of the Crime podcast. I'm Dr. Linda F. Williams. I take survivors of abuse and trauma from pain to purpose so that you take back your power, tap into the truth of who you are, and live your best life now. 1975, and I excitedly head off to college couple hundred miles away from home. Now, when I grew up in high school, I was the only African-American girl in the high school. My brother was a grade or two behind me. I had a brother who graduated two years before me, but generally, we were the Blacks. I think my graduation class was about 600, and when I packed to go off to college, I knew that I had no intentions of ever returning to this little podunk town that I grew up in. So I get to college, and this is my first experience with really socializing with African-American people outside of my family. So I didn't know how to act. I was on the wild. They, that's what we used to call it back then. You'd be on the wild. I didn't know. I had no real dating life to speak of. So I didn't really socialize. And I wasn't used to all the attention from the guys and all of that. So I was on the wild first first year in college. Well, one night I go and uh, to braid this guy's hair. And... Nature took its course, you know, I wound up sleeping with this guy and got up pregnant. Now, I carried that baby. I got, I started college in September 75. I was pregnant by the end of September of 75. And I carried the child through both semesters of school. And my firstborn was born in May. I think we got out of we finished our last classes and took our finals probably around the end of April. And then from May on, then you were out of school unless you took summer classes. So I had my son that summer. Now, to understand the dynamics, I'm setting up this whole domestic violence thing. I was showing and carrying my son when I met my first husband. Now, he knew that I was carrying somebody else's child. He had no... I was sticking out when he and I started going together. And he knew it was somebody else's child. I told him whose child it was and everything. But he still liked me and he still wanted to be my boyfriend. So we were good, I thought. Well, I had the child that summer and then he and I started living together my grandmother came she just loved kids man she wanted to grab everybody kids she talked about I'll take him I'll take him so that you can go to school so my grandmother raised my son for the first two three years of his life and so I wound up marrying the guy. Now, I grew up thinking, um, well, I didn't grow up thinking. I was told growing up that no man wanted any woman who had had another man's child. So I'm thinking I'm damaged goods anyway. 
and uh, we had gotten into church and the, and the couple that was kind of mentoring us was kind of pushing us toward, you know, you got to get married, you got to get married, you got to get married. So what did we do? We got married. Wrong thing to do. Anyway, there were times that he would kick me. I remember being in the floor and he was kicking me. And every once in a while, he would go off and he would hit me. But he would always do it so that nobody could see any bruises, right? And I don't remember ever calling the cops on this guy. But we were living in married housing on campus. And the neighbors were calling the cops when they'd hear that ruckus going on. And when I think back to it, it would always be a thing where the cops would knock what's going on. One would take me one way, one would take him the other way, or they'd both take him outside. And then they'd come, he'd come back in and they would just go. And I think that he was telling them I was the nutcase, but he never went to jail for it or anything. Now, this is back in the 70s. Now, I don't know if it was a rule then where you would take the guy in or not, whether the woman wanted to file charge. I don't know what the deal was. All I know is there were multiple reports to campus campus police about a ruckus in our apartment, and they would never take him to jail, and I would just be in that mess. And I remember one time, uh, it was in December, and we were my girlfriend and I were throwing my husband and his frat brother, she was married to the frat brother, and they had birthdays in the same month, so she said, well, let's throw them a surprise party. Well, I couldn't get this fool to go, so I finally had to tell him, well, look, we're throwing you you all a party, and you should come, and he just was in one of his moods, and he didn't even go, right? So on my way home, I said, well, let me go and at least pick him up something. I picked him up some McDonald's or something. By the end of the evening, that hamburger was thrown up against the kitchen kitchen wall, and he was mad and going off. And, and I don't remember much of it, but I know that there was some hitting going on that evening. So I telling him, you know, hey, tried to get you to go. I planned, I put money in on this thing, and you think I wasn't going to go? You could have come, but oh my goodness, why would I say that? Anyway, hamburger and ketchup all up against the wall in the kitchen and everything. So, I went through a couple, two or three summers like that. I don't know why I relate this to summer because even the birthday party incident was going on in the wintertime. So, it was going on all seasons of the year. And it started out with just shoving just shoving. I think if a man is going to shove you, then he'll take it even further. And uh, I, I blocked out so much of this. At some point, he said he wanted to get a gun. He said, I want to bring a gun in the house. Now, why he asking me, I do not know. But since you asked, no, I didn't want any guns in the house. And it was right about then where the, the violence got to the point where I knew that one of two things was about to happen. I knew that either I was going to kill this joker or be killed. And that's a heck of a place to be. And by the time I got to that point is around the time he was talking about bringing a gun in the house.
this is going to sound sketchy because it's been so many years, but next thing I know, it's like three or four o'clock in the morning. I've left the house in my nightgown, nothing else on but this nightgown. And I must have had shoes. I don't remember if I was barefoot or not. And I'm roaming the campus because I'm just out of my mind by now, okay? And I said, well, okay, I went over to the campus police station and told them what was going on. And they told me to have a seat. And thankfully, there was this lady named Doris Smith working there. Now, when I met Doris she was working in financial aid, which is where I had my college work study. And she and I had met then, but now she was working over at the police station. And I guess I must have looked like I was in such a state that she just took me under her wing. She took me the next day to go get some clothes from her church so that I could be dressed appropriately. And she helped me to put me in touch with domestic violence. She just kind of took me under her wing. Well, the domestic violence people would not allow me to come there because I was working a third shift job that would have me out past the domestic violence shelter's curfew. So that was a non-starter. So what she did was she had me going to social services. And I, the basic thing was this. Look, y'all, I need a place safe to stay with my two babies. Keisha was six months old at that time, and uh, Carl was back living with me because my grandmother had died that January. This was 1979 by now, and so I had both of them, and social services told me they were going to give me a place where it would be suitable for me to have my kids, but I could get away from the knucklehead. Well, in the middle, and I cannot remember all of this in sequence because it's been so many years and I've blocked out a lot of it. But what I do remember that at some point in this whole confusion, I had told the police that I needed to go to the house and get my things or have him leave so that I could go back to the house because nothing else was working out. What had happened was the kid's godmother, who had just had a baby a week or two before I had Keisha, they were both around six months old. She was raising her kid, but she offered to take Carl and Keisha in until I could get settled because she knew I was going through this domestic violence thing. Bless her heart. She, she took on all of that for weeks, okay? Anyway, I remember having the police come with me to the house. And I don't know, it was a thing where I remember trying to get him to leave. I wanted him to leave. And one policeman had me stay out in the living room area. And another one went into the bedroom area with my ex-husband. And he was in there with him for a while. Now, I'm thinking he's going to come out, have, have him leave, have my ex-husband leave. And then I could be there, go get the kids from their godmother. They ain't what happened, okay? All I remember is the guy came out of the bedroom, this this policeman, had a strange look on his face. I don't know what the heck went on in there, like he had seen a ghost. And all he did was said, he didn't even pull his partner aside. He looked at me and said, grab your purse, let's go. We need to get out of here. 
That's all I remember. And he said, get your purse. And so he said, I cannot make him leave because he's also on the lease, which I don't know if he was or not, but that must have been what he told him. And he said, because he's also on the lease, I can't force him to leave, but you need to come with us. And then I never lived in that place anymore. The agreement was that I was going to move to Chicago. I, my dad's family's there. My grandmother's side of the family was there. And so one of my aunts said, come on out here and we will take care of you and the kids until you get on your feet. And that was the plan. But, but if you looked at my last video toward the end, I said something about hopefully that the woman trying to get out of domestic violence would not advertise her next move to her assailant or to the guy that's that's mistreating her and i learned that lesson the hard way because i made the mistake of telling my ex that i was going to take the kids to chicago with me that i was leaving the state next thing i know he done took the kids went somewhere because he had the car i had no transportation i was down to my last dime because i had then lost the job that i had and so i was on my last dime and i said well what i'll do is borrow money i had borrowed money from my ex-roommate my former college roommate because she, i was going to take a bus with the kids and go out of town and when we went by the house to get the kids nobody there Nobody there. And I could tell there had been nobody there for a long time because if you go into a home generally where people are living, the kitchen sink won't be bone dry. Kitchen sink was bone dry. And I didn't know where he was. All I knew that I was supposed to get my kids and I figured he must have been in Detroit. Indeed, he had taken my kids and went to Detroit because he figured if he held them hostage, then I wouldn't leave him. Because my mouth all big. Doctor, doctor, doctor. Should have just done what I was going to do and not even tell him about it. This, this led to such a massive mess that went on for so many years. You will not believe it. So I said, okay, all right. I said, what I'll do is let me just get this stuff and get on this bus and deal with him a little later. I go into the bedroom to pack what few clothes I had and everything hanging in my closet was slashed. Knife, razor, whatever, brand new trench coat, all my clothes just, just slashed to shreds hanging in the closet. I had nothing. I took my slashed up trench coats because I love that trench coat and I just I boogied out of town. Boogied out of town, y'all. Uh, where we were staying, the city I was in, Zipsalani, and he was in Detroit. And if you look at a map, you'll know how far that was. I just, I just didn't have a transportation or anything, and I just didn't have it in me to even deal with this fool. Okay, so I, so I, so what I did was I got on the bus. And I said, well, I have to figure out how to come back and get them because I'm going to have to get them out of Detroit. So I borrowed her money from her, got on the bus, and I didn't go to the aunt that said that she was going to put me up. For some reason, I couldn't reach her by phone or something, so I called my other aunt, who was a nurse. 
And she said, well, yeah, this is how you get to me and everything. I didn't really have much luggage or anything. So all I remember at that time that I could ne never sleep. But if I took a handful of it, I advise nobody to do this mess. Don't do it because it'll shut down your kidneys. It's by God's grace that I'm still alive. But I took a whole bunch of Tylenol and I would just pop that when I really just needed to get some sleep. And then I would be able to relax and get some sleep. Now, the next morning, I remember pacing a lot that night too. Just pacing, just pacing. When we got up the next morning, she said, I'm taking you to Cook County. Now, Cook County was a hospital system in Chicago. It still exists. If you didn't have health insurance or you were too poor, that's where you went. And so that's where she took me to see a psychiatrist the very next day. Now, it took me years to think back to, oh, that's right. Aunt Lena is a nurse. And she must have seen the signs of a mental breakdown in me, which is why she took me immediately to the psychiatrist. And he he gave me a prescription for 10 milligrams of Valium and 75 milligrams of Elevil. I'll never forget it. Now, what Elevil is, I have no clue. Valium, I know what it is. And I was taking that on a regular basis. Now, I remember too that now that's the one aunt that was the doctor that got me the psychiatric help. But then I moved on out with the aunt that said she was going to keep me. And I remember that my aunt came in the door one day and I was screaming and hollering at the top of my lungs because I, I was talking to this fool that had my kids. And I don't know what this knucklehead said to me, but I must have been screaming to the top of my lungs because she was mad as hell because she use my language, but she pulls up in the driveway and she can hear me way out in the driveway. And that must have been the conversation where I realized that he's telling me I can never have my kids, yada, yada, yada. I'm young, stupid, don't know nothing and believe in this fool. So eventually, and I'm just telling you guys as much as I can because I'm going to have the kids on and we're going to talk we're going to have a, I'm going to make a video of talking with the kids about how all of that affected them, what that looked like from their perspective and how that affected them in adulthood. But it came to me through a friend of mine. Hey, I don't even know what to ask because I don't know your story. And that's why I'm telling you now. Next thing I know, it's December of 79. And I'm calling to wish my daughter a happy birthday. And when I called there, my mother-in-law talking about she don't know. She's just being real evasive about where the child is. And eventually she told me my baby was in the hospital. Now, y'all, I'm way in Chicago. I got to take a bus to get there. And when I finally get to the hospital, they done told so many lies on me that I had no right to even see the child. They wouldn't even let me see the child, okay? It was that bad. Eventually, I got in that hospital room, and I want you to picture the babies with the big, fat, distended bellies that you see over in the underdeveloped countries where they say feed the kids, and that's how my baby looked. 
She was in there for failure to thrive. She was the, she was a year old and she looked six months. She was six months old when I had to run for my life and she was still looking the same size with an extended belly. They took him down for child abuse and the kids, both of them became wards of the court so that his my ex's grandmother took my daughter and she was raised in Detroit. My parents took my, my son and so he was raised out in the country like I was. So it's just total mess, total mess. I went to court to tell my side of the story. I didn't have a clue what kind of lie they were telling. I do remember this part. I must have told the magistrate that I was a battered woman. And when she asked him, now I didn't have no, I had no representation. I didn't have no lawyer or nothing. I think he had representation, you know, legal representation. And sitting there with his lawyer, he, she asked him, were you beating your wife? And he said, yes. What? Just told the truth. Told the truth. Okay, thank God. So then she was explaining to me what steps I needed to go through in order to have the kids come to me in Chicago. It was something, something, something and have something. And then I'll have to tell you the story of the Chicago years because that's a mess. So anyway, that's that's how, how I wound up separated from the kids. And how he wound up getting taken down for child abuse. But he didn't have my kids no more. And I could get to my kids without having to go through his behind. I remember I, I, there have been times when I've talked this through with my kids. And um, I've asked or apologized for I can't tell you how many times I told them, I know that my stupid decision to be a stuck on stupid have cost you so much and you had to suffer through so much because of mama. And I just told them, look, I am so sorry I wasn't there. And they both said, what? It's not like you weren't there. I mean, you were there. We knew where you were and you were coming around. So it's not like we, you were absent from our lives. And see, when I think of the story from my perspective I was absent from their lives all I know is I didn't have my babies with me and I remember being so low so sick that whenever I would walk and see a lady with a baby I couldn't take it I couldn't look at that child I couldn't look at that woman with her baby that's how bad it was and I was in and out of mental health Back and forth, back and forth in the hospital a lot. I remember one time I was in there and I had some kind of infection that went from my kidneys. It was a vaginal infection, went to the kidneys and just all through this lower area. I can't remember what it was all about. But anyway, by the time my butt got to the hospital, it took them about a week to even break the fever. I'm so blessed to be alive, y'all. Sepsis, 
could have sat in and taken my butt out. I was just that sick. I was always sick. And uh, it was because of the thing that when you look at my video about uh, childhood trauma, you'll note that one of the symptoms of that is somatic issues, physical issues. It was like I was bearing the grief of not having my kids in my very body. It, it was always wrapped and towed down. Now, it's a blessing that I was in my 20s because I was more resilient back then. But I'm telling y'all, mm -mm, nope, no, mm -mm, nope, no. And I'm not blaming my mother either. Growing up the way she grew up, it was true that no man would want to be with her. Look, it was like the men were out there doing it and sowing their, sowing their wild oats left and right with women. But they didn't want to marry that woman. They wanted to marry somebody that was chaste, you know, if there were any virgins back then. That's how they grew up. And so if you ain't supposed to even have had sexual relations before you got married, you darn sure shouldn't be having no bite kid and expecting some decent man to want you. So I understand that. But I think that that's part of, not the only, part of that root of self-deprecation, self Lack of appreciation of myself, low self-esteem, feeling like I was damaged goods. Because I remember when I was carrying my son, she told my mother told me not to come home because she didn't want me to be a bad example for my sisters. Right. So I remember one Christmas, pregnant as the Dickens with no place to go because they were shutting the dorms down. You had to go somewhere. You couldn't stay on campus. It was a holy mess, a holy mess. It was a real mess, y'all. It was a real mess. So anyway, I've found it very difficult to do this. And I don't feel like I've done the story justice at all. But I'll tell you what I will do. As things come to me, I'll get them down on video so that I can tell you in more detail about what I went through. Because as I've told you the story, it doesn't feel like I've told the story. It doesn't feel like I've told the story. And shockingly, I've been trying to sit down here and tell this story for two weeks. I had it all, you know, I, I set up these little uh, folders and everything, and I save all of my videos in there to edit later and the folder's been sitting there for weeks so what is my problem I must I found it so hard to sit here and tell you this story and if I'm very honest with you part of the root of that is still hearing those voices in my head about how could you leave your kids how could you leave them nobody in my family was asking me what happened to me I was not called in home. I, I was raised, you made your bed, you lie in it. And no part of my psyche did it, did it occur to me that I should at least call my parents and tell them what I was going through. That wasn't even up here. That, that, wasn't, that never even crossed my mind for me to say, no, I'm not going to do that. 
And so what it's like I told you about narcissists will do. They will want to control the narrative. So, so there was a breeding ground for my ex-husband to be calling my parents all the time, telling them lies. It was 10, 15 years after all of this breakup with him happened that my mother finally told me that he had called them and told them that I was on drugs and selling drugs. That, what? What? I had no clue. So now they believe in all the stuff he telling them. Nobody asked me what was up. I called there one 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 holiday and my brother, my oldest brother got on the phone berating me. How could you leave your kid? How could you this, that, and the other? Nobody bothered to freaking ask me what my side of the story was. Now that could set up a heck of a root of bitterness as far as I'm concerned. And I'm not going to lie. I was bitter. But I came to a point where I said, I'm not explaining myself to anybody else. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm, if that's what they want to believe, they're going to have to believe that. Because nobody cared enough to ask Linda what the heck was going on. Apparently, I still have issues here, y'all. Apparently. And so, that's the lies they were telling. They were believing all of that crap. Okay? And... I'm just out here trying to survive. So if you don't tell your side of the story, and I'm just saying, when some when you're standing in the face of an accusatory person, and they're believing what the whoever else done told them, just generally they're gonna try to control the narrative. I'm I'm the wrong one, but I'm gonna rush and tell my story so that they believe my story. I'm gonna get out ahead of the truth. See, you gotta be careful about that crap. If you haven't heard from the individual that's being accused, then you owe them to hear their side of the story, and you should not automatically believe what. Ever you hear him straight off the bat because this is how it was with me I wasn't going to be running to my parents I didn't even think that was an issue a non-issue it never crossed my mind to tell my parents to seek help from my parents so they were clueless until this fool was calling them telling them all kind of crap and then now I got issues with them and so I'm just saying it was a mess y'all it was so much mess it was so much mess, and I'd be a trigger right now. I, I, it was hard for me to just even tell this much, so I gotta let y'all go. I'm not gonna keep talking here. I think I've gone over my 15 minutes. I'm determined not to make this a two-parter. If you made it this far, God bless you. Also, remember that I'm offering these after I done went off and triggered off like this, ain't nobody gonna want to talk to you, Linda. <laughs> ain't nobody want to talk to you. I'm gonna put it out here anyway. Call to action. Schedule your complimentary breakthrough session with me down below. Please like and subscribe. Join our membership. Join the Transformation family. Hit the join button below. You have to be a subscriber, but hit the join button below and join one of our three membership levels. 
Always remember your greatest power is realizing the truth of who you are. Know that truth. Thank you for joining me today on When Your Mind Becomes the Scene of the Crime Podcast. Schedule your free breakthrough session now at lindafwilliams.com. That's lindafwilliams.com.